Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have John Holler from Holler Brewing Company coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is the blogger behind SwankyMaven.com. Felice Sloan, welcome back to the show. How are you? Hey, 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 hey. I'm doing good. How are you doing, E? I'm good. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we have we have much to discuss, but before we get started, I did want to tell you that I did have one listener come to me and say, you are his favorite co-host. And if That's it were up so to weird. him... If it were up to him, it would just be Eric and Felice every week. Well, you know what? Please don't. Please, I hope Linda doesn't listen to this episode because she is going to talk crap the next time she comes in. But I appreciate that. I wish it were more of Felice and Eric, but, you know, we have to be fair. So thanks for that. <laughs> I will pass that along. <laughs> All right. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. Big news out of New Orleans. Acme Oyster House has claimed the former El Real space for its Houston location. It could open as soon as this fall. Felice, I know you you go to New Orleans on a pretty regular basis. Have you been to Acme Oyster House? And if so, what do you think of it? Yes. um, Good news. More seafood, more oysters for us. I have visited... Acme. Um, it is not necessarily my favorite just because I have other favorites when I go. However, if they're coming to Houston, I'm super excited because it gives us, I mean, more chargrill oysters and again, more seafood options. So I'm pretty excited. Yeah. So, I mean, we can, we can be a little bit honest here, right? It's in the French quarter. It's been around for about a hundred years. So it has the reputation as being kind of a tourist trap. Right, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't do well here. Because I think I think anything that has that kind of New Orleans cachet, people are really excited about. But just, just for funsies, play a little compare and contrast with me. How is Acme different from Neo's, which is the other New Orleans-based kind of oystery seafood restaurant that opened here? Uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's just a different, to me, it's a completely different vibe. Because again, you, as you said, you have that whole French quarters element of Acme. So it's just real uh, touristy, right? Um, but if you're in the French quarters, you want trugger oysters for me, I would go there. Um, Neo's has bigger flavors, um, they're more consistent. So it's just a whole different vibe. Completely different vibe. What are well, your thoughts? Well, I haven't I haven't been to Acme, so I'm, okay. I'm a little bit okay. reluctant. I am intrigued in the sense that they are known for their uh, wall of fame, which you can get on by eating 15 dozen oysters. And I, I don't know that I <laughs> necessarily could eat 15 dozen oysters, but I am down to try. I think I will be down to try it. I've never, I've never even had the desire to do it. Right? Let's just, like, 
you know, there's some challenges that I'm like, I'm cool doing. I don't know if I would even want to do that. Cause at the point where I get halfway through, I'm like, I don't want oysters for a while. And that's something that, you know, I love oysters. So I don't know if I'm really, really for the challenge, but the day you decide to do it, I definitely want to be on hand to get footage so we can kind of uh, talk crap about it. <laughs> well, the other thing is, I don't know how much that costs, right? Because it's 180 oysters. So even at two bucks a throw, that's right. a lot of oysters. That's, that's a, a lot, lot of oysters. It's a lot, it well, it's a lot it of is. money is what it really is. It's like, you know, it's a pretty fancy dinner. It is. It is. <laughs> but there's just, there's something just, uh, you know, Rob Walsh did it when he was working on the book, Sex, Death, and Oysters. And so I just feel sort of compelled. Like, I, I, want, I want to try it. You feel like it's a bucket list item at this point for you. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I'm usually down with the these like big eating challenges, but I think I might make an exception for. Active. Yeah, I think you should definitely go for it. You know, uh, we may try to get you some a sponsor or something to <laughs> offset the cost. You know, I I think it sounds good. That's right. We may need we may need culture map. I I may need to bump the expense report for that month. Right. <laughs> All right. Let us move on to. Topic number two, which I've described as a wave of closings sort of that have happened and that are coming. Yeah, uh, it's 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 we're we're into that. We kind of talked about it, right? We're starting to see that wave happen and it, it's sad, but you know, it's it was bound to happen. Right. So no bigger news, weirdly, than that the Starbucks at the corner of West Gray and Shepherd that was made famous by Lewis Black in his The End of the Universe rant closed. <laughs> that is to say the one on the south side. Right. Starbucks right. on the north side with the drive through was still very much open. Right, right. Not, like, please don't get it confused. And <laughs> Right. And I was explaining this to someone who doesn't live in Houston that, I, that this had been a pretty popular story. And they're like, well, I mean, a Starbucks closing? I mean, the restaurant industry is in like this huge crisis and and restaurants are closing all over the country, and you're writing about a Starbucks. And I it's like, well, yes, but it's a very famous Starbucks. Right. right. You're like, you have to, you had to give them context around it. They they probably were still like, okay, whatever. And you to to add that, that the other one is literally across the street. Like. Right. It's it's less funny if you haven't seen the Lewis Black bit. And of course, if you have, then you you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right, so, right. That's what I'm saying. So it's like, okay, got it, got it, got it. All right. Topic number two, part B. Uh, more important in the in the closing hierarchy, uh, Dolce Vita, Marco Weil's casual pizzeria, Italian restaurant, uh, is going to wrap things up at the end of the month. Uh, this is not unexpected. Weil's had put the building on Westheimer for sale about a year ago. So we kind of knew this was right. a matter of time. But we even discussed it on, on one of the episodes um, um, about this. We talked about it. So we oh, knew yeah. this was coming sooner than later. Well, it, and it turned out to be later than sooner because it's been almost a year. But this is a pretty significant restaurant. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it sort of introduced Neapolitan-style pizza to Houston. It had that really great menu of like pastas, small plates, and all the Italian wine list. 
you know, if, if DeMarco kind of set a certain standard for fine dining, uh, you know, Dolce Vita kind of paved the way for a lot of more casual restaurants. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that, like, there's no cultivare without Dolce Vita before it, but it, it certainly sort of proved that there was a market for an affordable, independent, creative restaurant. And, uh, you know, I, it's not a place that I've, I've been to very much in the last, say, two, three years, but it, it certainly had its place. And it's a restaurant that I uh, respected quite a bit. Yeah, um, I think I mentioned before, I I felt bad for the people that love it and live over there, but I'm not necessarily going to miss it. I never went over there. It's been years. So um, this one, I don't have, I don't feel a certain way. You know, I don't. Right. Well, obviously, you know, people who want that Neapolitan style pizza, you know, Pizarro's is not very far away. Right. Um, people who want pasta and small plates, I would recommend Weights and Measures. Or maybe you go a little farther down Westheimer to Giacomo's. But you have options. This is not. You have, exactly. It's not going to leave a big hole in the market there. Right. And, of course, Marco Wiles owns DeMarco, which is fine dining. But also uh, Vino Pateco Pascal, which is right down the street from Dolce Vita, is pretty casual and will scratch some of the same itches so you're not you're not bereft all right uh closing number three the west side location of rage and cajun that is to say the one at westheimer and gessner is closing after 20 years you know again like i over the years i have developed other places that i go for kind of cajun style food but i'm reasonably sure that it was either rage and cajun or papado was like the first place I ever had crawfish. Yeah. And so it's been, you know, it's been such a pioneer. And of course it was a staple in that neighborhood, you know, it was open for 20 years. So uh, I just felt like it was worth acknowledging. I don't, I don't know. What is your sort of uh, raging Cajun relationship? You know, um, if there's a raging Cajun that I go to, I always pass that one up um, because it's always empty. I'm actually shocked that they're just now closing, like just to be honest with you, um, because it really is more of a neighborhood spot at this point. I like going to the Raging Cajun. There's one um, in Sugarland or the the one on Richmond, the original, which I think are the the one in Richmond still going to be open. So I like going there just because it's a good scene. It's a good feel. Um, I like the energy of it if I go to Raging Cajun. But right. Yeah, as far as the neighborhood, I think that because the there's more offerings in that neighborhood now, and so you see a shift. So this one doesn't come as a shock to me because literally it's right there um, next to the El Tempo, which is always busy. They're never been. I mean, it's just never busy. Right, and obviously, if you're in that part of West Houston and you want crawfish, you have a million options in Chinatown. Uh, Matt Harris, who's on the show on a pretty regular basis, introduced me to Genevieve's, which is on Westheimer, just Mm -hmm. outside the Beltway. Uh, They are known for having exceptionally large crawfish. Uh, So you got, again, you got options. All right. Closing number four, the original Dak and Bop in the Museum District. The Korean Fried Chicken Restaurant is going to close on Memorial Day. Uh, They, of course, have a second location that they opened last year. It's not in the Heights. It's really Lazy Brook Timber Grove, but on 18th Street, 
Um, so again, if you live in the museum district, losing Dak and Bop and, and, you know, they make really great fried chicken and I always appreciated their, their cocktails, their Japanese whiskey selection, all of that. Uh, but you know, this is going to sting a little bit, but you still have the other location to go to. Now, you know what? I, I, I agree with you. And one thing I was thinking about, um, and you may know the answer to this with them closing that location and it being a different concept, are they going to modify the second location to kind of take some of the best dishes off of that menu and combine it so they can service everybody? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. So I talked to the owner, Jason Cho, and he said they're going to run what he calls the OG menu to have, you know, the four or five most popular dishes from the original Dak and Bob will be on the menu at the new Dak and Bob. Well, so see, there you go. I, so the the biggest loss is for the people in the museum district, right? Because that saves, that helps them, saves them. And I like the second location better anyway. It is a more comfortable yeah. setup. It's It's got more parking. It's, yes, no, it, it's a bigger menu. Yes, there are, there are things about the second Dak and Bob. It's a, it's a bigger, better, better Dak and Bob for sure. Yeah. And then finally, uh, this is this is just coming out this week. Is that the the original Tree Beards in Market Square will not be renewing its lease on that location? Uh, they are they are moving on. Of course, there are four other Tree Beards locations downtown. All of those will remain open, and they are working on opening a new location on I ten just east of Bunker Hill. And I was trading emails with one of their owners today, who told me that they have recruited. Matt Marcus of the Eatsy Boys to do their bar menu, and Linda Salinas, who is a regular force of nature on this podcast, she is uh, she's doing the cocktails for them. So, uh, yeah, I just read that. I'm I was pretty excited about that. It kind of takes the sting away for me, um, even though there are three additional locations downtown which I never went to. Always went to the Market Street location, but the new location, I've been excited about it. And when um, I found out uh, Matt and Linda are involved, it's exciting. I'm like, okay, what now? What you know? What are they cooking up? So it kind of takes that sting away from me. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I actually, I was a like a summer intern at Shell Oil in the mid '90s. So my first Treebeard experience was actually underground at the 1100 Smith oh, Street the location. Okay, okay, yeah, in the tunnel. So I don't feel quite the same, but the the old Culture Map office used to be in the north part of downtown. So Market Square was our Treebeards, and I sort of recognized that it's uh, it's a historic block. I mean, it's right next to Warren's Inn, the, the sort of legendary Houston dive bar. It's uh, but uh, you know there's there's still a lot of Treebeards, and and my excitement about this new memorial location, which will be the first Treebeards to serve dinner. And, and that they're bringing in these kind of young guns to freshen things up a little bit. I just, you know, that's all to the good as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. All right. And then topic number three, spend some changes at weights and measures. There are new owners, Gene Frazier and Catherine McNeil. They bought out the founders and the, the former partners, including John Deal, the owner of El Patio, Ian Rosenberg, who still owns Mongoose versus Cobra and 13 Celsius, Mike Sammons, who 
was one of the founders of 13 Celsius and now owns How to Survive on Land and Sea, and Chef Richard Kaplan, who retired. Mm. And so Richard is, uh, Richard is retired, so now Fernando Rios, who was his second-in-command, I don't know if he was the executive shoe or the chef de cuisine, you know, those, those chef titles, they get a little fuzzy sometimes. <laughs> right. But uh, Fernando has been number two, Richard's number two for a long time. He is now in charge of the kitchen. And Angela Moore, who had been at the Passing Provisions for a long time, she is now the general manager. I mean, you and I both have a certain affection for weights and measures. I guess just like kind of where does it where does it sort of rank for you? I mean, like, like, what do you think of that place? So if I have friends in town, you know, it's one of those places. Definitely if I have friends in town, that's a spot that I would like to take them to. Right. Because it just it kind of represents Houston in a way far as far as brunching. I would definitely take them there for that. One of the things that I always laugh when I talk to people, people like, oh, wait, if you're not a weights and measures person, you still know about it and have a, you feel a certain way. They're like the little engine that could. They're always reinventing themselves to stay relevant. And um, I think it's cool. I think that's one of the cool things. I think about what they started out as, which was super exciting. And they're always evolving. So um, I'm excited for them excited for the future and um, I'm glad they're, you know, I'm glad they're not going away and they're surviving through this whole thing, you know, and that the carrot pizza is still going to be on the menu. <laughs> no, no, the carrot pizza is not going anywhere. <laughs> that, that, I, that they're smart enough. It's still going to be on the menu. So yeah, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy for us as, as diners um, and people have an appreciation for it. You know, there would be, there would be rioting. If they tried to take that, <laughs> there would be protests. You know, I, I talked so to too. I, I talked to Chef Fernando and, and Angela, and I was so, you know, what's the big difference between, you know, the old owners and the new owners? And basically, they just said, you know, the new owners, you know, they trust us. Uh, they've put us in charge. They want us to be successful. They put a little bit of money into the place, right? They built out a a bigger private dining room. They they took some some space from the kind of the bar lounge. They upgraded some of the stuff behind the scenes in the kitchen. And and now they're going to be open for breakfast uh, six days a week. So they're closed on Mondays, but they're doing breakfast during the week, Tuesday through Friday. Of course, it's a, as you said, it's a very popular brunch destination. And it just feels like it's like kind of um, a little more focused. You know, they cut the prices on the wine list so that it's, it's kind of picking up the, uh, Picking up the slack from when Ibiza closed, you know, like if it can kind of be that casual neighborhood hang for breakfast and lunch and maybe slightly more elevated at dinner with a great affordable wine list, you know, that, um, I mean, it's a restaurant that I really enjoy. It's, it's a date night spot for me, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe sometimes a first date, sometimes a second or a third, but like it's, it's pretty inevitable that if I'm, if I'm, you know, somewhat serious about someone that eventually we will go to weights and measures just because I think it's got such a great vibe. Yeah. So see, you just said something. It wouldn't be a first date spot because it would be if, if they make it kind of, if they make it, then you're taking them there. You don't want to take them there on your first date and you're like, wah, wah, then, you know, it's your spot. No, Eric, you're doing it all wrong. Well, the nice thing about, the nice thing about taking 
someone there on a first date is I know they'll make me look good. Oh, okay. Right. That's good. That's a good right. way to think about it. Okay. They'll be, happy, they'll be happy to see me. The food will be really tasty. You know, we'll have a bottle of wine. Like I just, you know, it's not going to cost me an arm and a leg. You know, I, I value all of those aspects in a, uh, in a first date restaurant. Got it. Okay. Got it. All right. Um, <laughs> and I, and so long, long story longer, as we've been talking here for a minute, uh, I do think that, that, you know, these changes are, are positive and I am excited about them. And, and so, uh, yeah, we'll see what Fernando and Angela do with the place. But but I think uh, I think it's poised for success. I do. I do, too. I do, too. I think. And if someone hasn't visited there in a while, it gives you a reason to go, you know, to go check out what they have going on now. So I'm excited to get back. I haven't been there for breakfast in a long time so that they're, you know, expanding those days. I can give them a breakfast shout out again. Well, right. They tried breakfast in the very beginning when it first right. opened. They gave up on it after uh, less than six months. Right. And so this is this is one of those things where they've brought it back and they're committed to it. And there's just not that many places for a sit-down breakfast during the week, especially in Midtown. I mean, really, their only competition is Harry's. And so... You know, if they build it around their pastries and some of the big, the greatest hits from the brunch menu, like the avocado toast, you know, you just have to kind of stick to it. But but breakfast is kind of an interesting meal for a restaurant because once you get in someone's rotation, you know, they might come to you two, three, four times a week. I agree. I agree. And to that point, I think we need way more breakfast spots in Houston. But that's a whole nother car. That's another conversation for another day so there you go yes all right felice that does it for the news of the week we'll be right back with our restaurants of the week stick around you're listening to what's eric eating so felice for our restaurants of the week i want to talk to you about some of the places where you have been ordering to go have you have you dined at a restaurant yet since they reopened have you ventured out I ventured out, but I haven't dined. I haven't dined. Um, I ventured out. The one spot that I would have dined um, that I went to was Corkscrew, right? Because, you know, they have that. I went to Corkscrew. They have the whole outdoors area. Um, and But it was so many people, and they were social distancing. I was just like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I can just take this to go. Um, so I have not, I've gone in to get it and my intentions were to do it. And then if I see people or more people than I'm comfortable with, then I just get it wrapped up. But I have ventured out and, you know, um, I went, where did I, I just went somewhere. I just, I just. Did you go to, didn't you go to Roberto, uh, Chef Roberto's new chicken restaurant? Yes. uh, Thank you. (laughs) I'm like, I just went somewhere this weekend. Yes, uh, Chicken House. I went out there where it's out outside the loop. It's fast casual. And um, it was, they, they're dining or takeout. So I had called it in with the intention of taking out. Then I saw Chef Roberto and um, my thoughts were to dine there. But it's a little bit smaller and I just kept it to go. But um We'll talk. Are we? Can we talk about that restaurant real quick? 
Yes, no, please do. I, okay. I, I'm eager to hear about it because he opened, ah, uh, God, this is so the, bad. The chicken, he, chicken Station. That's right. The Chicken Station in, in East End, Second Ward, whatever that is, uh, which is which is a, a really pretty delicious, fast, casual Peruvian chicken restaurant. So I'm I'm really curious to hear how the new place is going. Okay, so I don't think he's even affiliated with that anymore. Not um, anymore, but, no. Yeah, but that's it was good. So this place, I think, it's 10 times better just off the bat. So if you like that, you'll really enjoy this. It reminds me, it really does give me that feel of um, old school Latin Bites as a more casual, casual spot. Like the big flavors, definitely. I was impressed when I went to Chicken Station when he was there, but I was more impressed when I went and checked it out. I, I did... Um, some chicken, a couple of the sandwiches, um, the sides. Yeah, so I, I definitely think that they're they're going to do well. One of the things he was saying, he was shocked to open. You know, they were kind of, they opened right in the middle of all this happening. And it was like they could not open or they could move forward with opening. And they moved forward and he's like, they've been busy. They've been busy, and which is very interesting because they are in the energy corridor, so they have the potential to be very dead because all those businesses are closed. But um, as I I sat there, because it took a while because I ordered um, lots of stuff, and it was a steady stream of people coming and going. So um, I'm excited for them. I'm really excited. And this puts him in the um, – his sister – which was part owner, the sister and the brother-in-law in Latin Bites. They were all together, puts them all back together again. And I think they're a really good team. They they understand how to work together and what, what is needed. So I think you will be impressed when you go. You know, this, uh, I was just looking this up. So it looks like it's at, uh, it's basically at Park Row and Highway 6 is what it looks like. It literally is. Like right when you um, exit and you... Um, Go to that light, make a left. It's literally right there. If you know where Top Golf is, it's the Top Golf. It's behind that. It's behind the Top Golf. There's a strip okay. center, a street right. That's Park Row. It's right there. Yeah. All right. Well, that I can find that. No, I I really liked what he did at Chicken Station. So I am. So for you to tell me it's better than Chicken Station, that that has my attention. <laughs> yeah. And so then when you go. Let me know. I'll meet you there. Yeah. So you mentioned going to Corkscrew. And feeling like even though there was social distancing, there were maybe like too many people, even though, even though everybody was following the rules, they were still far enough apart. Um, I kind of felt that way when I went to Brasserie 19 last week. Okay. You know, I, I sat on the patio and again, they had, they had a lot of space between tables. They had hand sanitizer out on the table for people to use, for the staff to use. The staff were wearing masks and gloves. You know, everything was... Everything was following the rules. Everybody was following the rules. And it still made me a little bit nervous to be around that many other people. Uh, so I don't quite know how we, like, mentally kind of make the leap to feel, like, more normal again. But, but I, but you know, Brasserie was kind of my dip the toe in the water, see how it goes. Yeah. And but you know what was interesting about Corkscrew, and I think because they're two different type of restaurants, Corkscrew, it kind of felt like the new normal was okay 
because most of the people, you know, you go online. You, I, I appreciate being able to pre-order my barbecue, knowing that they were going to have it. That's number one, right? So right. I ordered it. Here's my time. They're not going to be sold out. And then just people were kind of like getting it and going. And it just felt like, okay. But you take a brasserie where that's more, we're used to going there, eating, enjoying it there. It it would be a different feel. Definitely a different feel. I, I could see how you would feel like that. And it's kind of like you want that. I would want to eat that there, right? Like I would. Well, right. Well, take right. That. I got it. Right. I mean, I got a dozen oysters and you know tuna tartare. Right. Those things don't necessarily travel well. They really have right. to eat at a restaurant. And and the food was fine, but it's just I'm still still kind of making the leap on the atmosphere. And you know, there's always that that mild disappointment when you know you go to order that that bottle of wine you want and they're out of it. So, yeah. right. it, and they've got a they've got a good wine list. We found something else that was about the same amount of money that we enjoyed, but you know, there, there's that mild disappointment. Uh, I will say, I got takeout from Rosie Cannonball. I got a, a grilled chicken dish and that blistered green bean salad and a and a pint of gelato from uh, their pastry chef Sean Gall. And you know, it's a funny sort of thing, right? Because part of what makes eating at Rosie Cannonball so good is is how sort of thoughtful the services, right? You sit down, they give you that little taste of sparkling lambrisco. It's like they're, mm-hmm. they're very attuned to your needs. So in, since they can't do those things, um, there was a little handwritten card in the bag with the food. You know, thank you for supporting us. I just thought that was a really thoughtful touch. And of course, I live close enough to Rosie Cannonball that it didn't. it doesn't take long to get the food home and get it on a plate. And I thought it held up really well. And that... Um, that pistachio gelato, when that's available, is uh, one of the better ice cream style desserts. And I just, you know, I, I consider a pint a single serving. So crush that, ate the chicken, green <laughs> beans, uh, a very satisfying meal. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I have that one on my list too. So now that you've said that, I have that one on my list to get over to get for takeout. And, um, you know, I got to get to Candente this week for their happy hour. So, you know, maybe we can meet over there and, and see how we're feeling because they're, they're doing the patio kind of yeah. outside, which is great. We have natural air, the fresh air. So let's check that out and see see how we fare. Well, yeah, let me know. I'm, I'm definitely down to join you at Candente. Yeah. So let's make it happen. Happy hour today. All right. That does it for our restaurants of the week. Felice, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. I look forward to um, us getting back in the studio one day soon. If not, continuing to do this and just, you know, getting back to whatever our new normal looks like. Absolutely. All right. I will be right back with John Holler. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I am joined this week by John Holler. He is the co-owner of Holler Brewing Company in Sawyer Yards. John, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Eric. I'm doing fine here. It's a lovely day. Uh, I'm up here at the brewery, just finished cleaning a tank. And um, yeah, happy to be be here with you. Well, thanks for doing this. I, I always like to start these interviews kind of at the beginning. So just tell me a little bit. I mean, what made you want to get into the, the world of brewing beer for a living? 
Oh, man. You know, I miss telling this story. We haven't been telling this story recently because we've always just been talking about COVID. Uh, so well, we're getting it. We're, that's coming. But I know I, we will. Yeah, yeah, I know. But uh, this is nice. Like, I have to go back to the what seems like the Middle Ages now or like different a lifetime ago before before all this um, in our much simpler and more innocent time. Uh, we, what were we doing when we got into this business? Um, Catherine and I, we got into home brewing. Um, we, we moved to Houston for, we graduated college and moved to Houston for work. So we kind of made our adult lives here in Houston. And I worked for an oil company, oil behemoth. And, uh, Catherine worked as a teacher, a middle school teacher. And we got into home brewing and we really, just got into craft beer. I mean, we loved going to St. Arnold. We loved going um, when Buffalo Bayou opened and Carbach opened. Um, we just kind of fell hard for craft beer and everything that it stood for. When we traveled, we found that it was, you know, a way to experience um, another city or another country was to go to the breweries and drink the beer and and talk to the people, the other patrons there, talk to the people who work there and, and get a nice buzz. So we just loved, we, we loved everything about it. And, um, we moved overseas. Uh, my company moved me to Doha, Qatar in the middle East. Uh, we moved overseas in 2013. And at that time, craft beer had really just, it, it was having a, a real, um, renaissance or just a real watershed moment in houston with several breweries opening right around that time eighth wonder i think had just was just opening buffalo bayou and carbach had just opened and there were several other breweries you know getting announced that were going to be opening in the area um more beer bar you know hay merchant had recently opened and and we were just we we, we were really sad to leave the beer scene behind and we moved overseas uh, and we enjoyed our time out in a different part of the world, but we still felt this nagging, uh, uh, this nagging feeling that we were missing out on something, and we were following it from afar. You know, looking at all the breweries opening in Houston and all the breweries opening in the U.S. This boom going on, and it seemed like so much fun and something we were so interested in that we really wanted to participate in it, and we just kept thinking about it and we decided, well, why don't we, why don't we just do it? And, um, there were plenty of reasons not to, but as we kind of worked through each of them, we convinced ourselves that we could overcome all those reasons, you know, oh, well, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to make it work? Um, how are we going to make any money doing this? You know, we're used to having these nice jobs where we make enough money and we just decided, well, we'll, We'll learn to live on less and we'll figure it out, kind of figure it out as we go. And we put together a business plan and um, it was, well, how are we going to get the, how are we going to get the training in order to do that? You know, we're just home brewers and we found um, there was a brewing school in Chicago that I signed up for. And so that was, you know, that was the plan was to come back here, um, get this, start this brewery from scratch. And, um, and that's what we did. So we came back here and 20, we quit our jobs, moved back here in January of 2015, and um, put together the funding. I went to brewing school. We found this lease on this space out here in Sawyer Yards. 
Um, and then it took, so in total, it took about a year and a half or maybe a year and 10 months because November of 2016 is when we finally opened. And, um, and so we've been open now for, oh, three and a half years or so. That's our, that's our, our biography. And, and I, what I think is so interesting about Holler is, and, and you're not unique in this necessarily, but you're, you're a little bit different than, you know, the St. Arnold and Eighth Wonders of the World in that you really are focused on your tap room. You, you're in a few bars, you know, on draft, but you don't really, you're not in kind of grocery stores or, or retail outlets. There's no, there's no cans of holler on store shelves. There's no bottles. Um, why did you kind of make the decision to be that kind of smaller neighborhood brewery instead of, uh, instead of a larger brewery with a, a more retail focus? I think it's, I can't decide which of these two reasons it is. I've convinced myself that it's both of these reasons. Um, but this was what we decided early on was firstly, that that's what we wanted to do. Um, that we, we didn't want to have a, you know, we, we quit our jobs to do something fun. Um, and we didn't want this thing to turn into something that's not fun. And so one way to avoid that is to to keep it small and stay connected to the product to the point where, you know, I'm still brewing and, and we're still serving our beer. Well, we don't really serve it that much anymore. We delegated that, but we're still well connected to the product. And, um, but the, the other reason, and maybe this is the real reason, the real kind of strategic reason was that when we looked at the time, we saw that everyone else was, was either was doing, was, was going for a large distribution footprint. It was St. Arnold obviously had been doing that for, for decades, but everyone else was trying to be St. Arnold at the time. Anyway, it was, you know, that, that, that everyone was kind of building a miniature version of St. Arnold and the goal was eventually to be St. Arnold. And you couldn't pick a better role model if that's what you're trying to do. But we thought, you know, let's just do something that everyone else isn't trying to do. And you pointed out that we're we're not the only ones that thought of that, and that's a probably uh, if you think of the number of breweries nowadays in the U.S. of eight thousand breweries, there are you know thousands of those breweries are like ours, which is that yeah they focus on fresh beer. But what we saw was that even if that's the case, even if there are thirty other breweries just like ours in the city, no one can compete with our actual brewery because um, our our, our product is extremely fresh and local. And the only, so the only brewery that could compete with ours in terms of the, the freshness of beer would be one that's just as small as ours and that's right next door to us. So, you know, we build our beer. If, you, if you're 10 times or 100 times the size of our brewery, you can't sell all of your beer in your backyard. You can't sell all of your beer in your tap room or close to it. Your beer has to travel farther, and therefore you have to build the beer differently. You have to build in some shelf life to the product, and you, you have to make a different product. So I hate to use the word because I, I do this sometimes too, but you have to compromise. Um, and so we thought, well, let's, let's make this business one where um, we are committed to that small scale and that no one can compete with us on the freshness of the beer unless they were right next to us. Um, and then we have breweries right next to us, but still relative to the amount of demand there is, 
you know, all I need is a loyal following of, you know, 200, 300 really loyal customers that, uh, that we've connected to. And that, that's, that's my business right there. I don't have to worry about building a product for shelf life to travel out to, you know, customers across the state. So, um, it's, it's fun to do it this way. And we see it as a, we see it as a competitive advantage, frankly. Well, and, and does being that small, does that allow you to do, are there styles of beer that maybe don't hold up as well or don't lend themselves to shelf life considerations that you're able to brew because you know you're going to move through it pretty quickly? Yeah, I'd say, I can't think of an example of that actually, but I, but there, there's definitely times where we're making a niche style that would not move, you know, that, and, and like, um, we'll talk to brewers at, uh, at the larger breweries and they'll say, damn, man, I wish we could make an English mild like you guys do, but it wouldn't, we wouldn't sell enough of it. So, uh, I, what I see more often, what we see more often and what we, in, the advantage or not the advantage, but I guess the luxury that we enjoy is that we don't need mass appeal for all of our products. So, you know, we've made, a great example is a Roush beer. It's a smoked, using smoked malt in a beer. And it's a highly divisive style. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I happen to love it if it's done well. But a large brewery has, a, has trouble doing that because unless you're really into that style, you're, you're either going to hate it or you're going to find it really weird. And so um, if you have, if you have a, a minimum batch size that's 100 times the size of ours, um, you know, every, every, every batch of beer that you make, you have to commit behind it, a lot of investment in the ingredients an investment in a kind of a marketing plan. You've got to get your whole team on, you know, your whole marketing team on board with it and they've got to get their, uh, their reps on board with it. They've got to talk to their accounts and make sure that they're on board with it. And that's something that these, these, you know, uh, not like picking on San Juan, that's something that San Juan does really, really well. Um, but they're not going to do it for a Roush beer. Um, they're not going to do it for an English mild. Some of these more, more obscure styles that have hardcore fans, um, but just don't have enough of them to carry that style. We're able to do those styles without, I mean, we, we don't have to do the, we don't have to even think about it. We know that it may sell a little bit slower than our, our other products, but we'll still be able to sell it. And we're not committing if we if we do have to dump it for commercial reason reasons, which is like the saddest thing ever that I have had to do before, uh, we're not dumping you know we're not dumping someone's payroll down the drain or 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 anything anything that big. It's just um, the the commitment's a lot lower. So that small size definitely gives us the flexibility to to play around more. I gotta say, dumping a batch down the drain sounds like the worst. Oh, you know, man. You know the, all the jokes about alcohol abuse, right? Like when, when somebody <laughs> spills their beer, you know, it's like that's the, that's the worst. It is, and every brewer will tell you that it's. Uh, they'll tell you, um, especially if it's if you're dumping it for quality reasons, which is the more which is more common, which is you know something went wrong with the batch. Um, sometimes you end up in a situation where, actually, almost all the time, it's a it's a situation where. The beer isn't so bad that it's undrinkable, but you know that something's wrong with it. And so you go through these stages of, of grief and, uh, or stages of, uh, you, you just go through a lot of uh, internal struggle and you're, 
thinking, well, because, because the problem is, you know, deep down, something's wrong with it. Yet you also know that you could probably sell it and get away with it. And so there's that like temptation of, hey, let's just sell it. It'll be gone in the, in the next two or three weeks and no one will ever know. And uh, you won't have had to dump that beer down the drain. Um, but then again, you will, that whole time, you will know that you're selling beer that you're not proud of. It might manifest itself in you and your conscience in some way that could end up harming you irreparably. Or, you know, the one that we used a lot was uh, that we would tell ourselves was the Brock Wagner test, which was, you know, who Brock Wagner is. Uh, yes, yes, the founder of St. Arnold. He's been on the founder, show. Yeah, so we would say for any beer, before you decide to sell it, you know, would you be proud to serve that to Brock Wagner? If, if he came in, if he decided to, I don't know why he would, but if he decided to come in here one day and try our beer, would you, would you, would you be nervous to, to serve that beer to Brock Wagner? And, uh, or, or would you be proud to serve that beer to Brock Wagner? And if, and if you have to question that, or if the answer is no, then your answer is you dump it down the drain. And, um, even St. Arnold, uh, dumps batches down the drain sometimes, and it's a, uh, and the brewers will tell you whoever when you do it that it's always the right decision to dump it, and it's it's a horrible experience, but you feel so relieved afterward because you know you made the right you know it's one of those difficult decisions, but you know you made the right call. Yeah, it and, seems um, like it seems like the sort of thing where if you have to ask, should we dump yeah, this down the exactly. drain? Then you should probably dump it down the drain. Uh, yeah, the other yeah, the other Brock yeah. Wagner test is uh, Brock always talks about he always wants to brew a beer where he he drinks one and then he wants a second, which kind of governs you know yeah. some of those you know St Arnold's a little easy drinking you know a little a little smoother maybe than than some of the other uh, yeah some of the other breweries out there. I don't know that Brash has that same uh, no. that same calculus. Well, you know the the that's. Um... That's about drinkability, I think, is one word people we use for that, which is how, you know, yeah, can you drink two or three or ten of these beers? And, man, like, the definition of drinkability has just has changed a lot, or the standard of drinkability has changed a lot. You know, some of the beers on the market now are so um, sweet, heavy, uh, just, I think they are, I think without if I want to try and not be too colorful on my opinion of this, it's there are some beers that are um, you have one sip of it and it's delicious and um, and it can blow and it blows away. You know, it's a sensory overload just from one sip. Um, and those beers right now are very popular. And there are some breweries that actually make a living on those, like make a killing on on brewing only those beers. And on the other end of the spectrum is the St. Arnold, who says, um, "Yeah, they've got some. They have some some of their barrel aged stuff that's the, that are more sippers, but even those are highly drinkable um, for the styles that they are. And then all the mainstays of St. Arnold, those are beers that you could drink several of, and and actually, you know, one sip of those beers." Uh, one sip of one of those beers might not even, might not be all that impressive if you're expecting a sensory overload. It might be underwhelming if you're expecting a sensory overload. But um, but yeah, I think uh, I'm with them. I mean, I think a good beer is one that, and I think Brash would say this too, that 
you know, if you can't drink a full pint of it and want another one, um, it's not a good beer. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some of those like multi, you know, porter stout type beers where I'll have a sniffer, you know, six ounces or whatever of it. And like, that is all of that beer I need for my entire yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this yeah, was interesting. Meal. I respect the craftsmanship that went into this. I never need to drink this again. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that's right. And then, and that's a meal in itself. You know, the other thing is a lot of those drinkable beers, um, you know, they go well with food. Whereas some of the, yeah, some of these beers have so much going on in them that there is, you know, you can't, it will clash with just about anything. So um, it's a meal in itself. It's, it is, it, you know, it's apples and oranges. All right. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the coronavirus because in, I mean, I can't tell if being as small as you are makes it easier to survive this or if losing access to your tap room, which was kind of the, the whole thing that makes you special, has been, has been really detrimental. So, so you tell me, what's it, what's it been like for you guys uh, without your tap room? Oh, it's a, it's a mixed bag in that. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good question. We, um, yeah, I mean, certainly our business is all draft beer. I mean, we sell in the tap room, all our beer is draft and the, and then we sold, you know, we do a decent amount of, um, of account sales here in town and they're all draft. So, you know, this basically the coronavirus essentially shut off all, all of our sales channels. So that, you know, compared to say a brewery that has packaged beer that's going on to store shelves, um, they've still got an avenue, whereas our, our, you know, our sales channels are all, we're all traditional sales channels are all pretty much shut down. Um, we are, but I, you know, one thing that I'm proud of is that we have made a conscious decision to stay small since we've opened. And it's not as though we could have chosen, you know, to, to be as, as successful as say a St. Arnold. But we have chosen not to not to even try to come close. That we we've chosen to, rather than chasing growth every year, um, we've tried to just stay small and focus on um, not only focusing on making better better beer than we did the prior prior year, um, but also maintaining a strong balance sheet so that if something did happen, we could absorb you know whatever that hit would be. And so, you know, we don't have any debt. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not overextended in terms of commitments. So the only, really, the only debt that we have, I guess, would be our lease, if you'd consider that um, debt. So, so anyway, when this thing hit in, in March, uh, when it got real in March, we kind of sat down and said, well, we're, we're, we are going to have to pretty much shut down because we don't have any sales channels. Um, that's the bad news. And it is bad news, and and we have to lay off our employees, which is bad news. Uh, never thought I would have to do that. Never wanted to do that. But the good news is we can afford to stay shut down as long as we have to. So we're not sitting here in this compromised position of if I if I can't get going in the next 24 hours, I, I'm going to owe a bank my entire business. So um, so we've been able to sleep better at night. Um, knowing that we're 
you know, we can we can stay patient with this thing. And and you've done a little bit of you know you you set up a drive through. You did a little bit of uh, delivery. I mean, I oh yeah, that's true. I guess we haven't been completely shut down. So that would you're right. And we yeah. So we maintained a. We we were going for like seven weeks. We we didn't brew anything. So we um, another thing that's been convenient for us is that we keep all our beer in serving tanks rather than kegs. So um, and beer actually stores better in serving tanks because less liquid is exposed to um, oxygen. So so we didn't have an issue with having to move inventory quickly. Um, and we had you know eight basically had eight tanks of fresh beer sitting in the cooler that would stay fresh as long as we need it to. And so we didn't have to brew any, we weren't going to brew any more beer. We had to lay off all our staff, but we did start a delivery program where we, you know, basically just filled cans off of those tanks to order. And, uh, I delivered them around town and, um, that allowed us to pay the, you know, it didn't, obviously that's, a pretty inefficient way to get beer out there, delivering it one, you know, sometimes one can at a time into someone's apartment complex. Um, but it helped us stay connected with our customers and it did put enough money in the bank to, you know, keep us paying our rent without having to, to um, dip into savings. You know, that, that's how I spread this podcast, by the way. I just, I just take people's phones and subscribe them to it individually. <laughs> it's, it's not very efficient, yeah. but it is very effective. That's right, and and you've earned you know you've earned those pe- their loyalty right because you've you've made sure that uh, you've taken their phone and you've made sure that this podcast is going to automatically download whether they want it or not. That's right. Whether right whether you listen to it, I you know, but I just I need the numbers right. The so download, download, yeah. Download the thing, you know. Whether you listen to it, you can put it on mute for all I care. Just you know, whatever. But that's not, not too much to ask. Yeah. I think it's I, right. I, you know, I did it like to my family. That's how that's how the the audience got started. I was give me your phone. So no, I I completely relate. Um, now that you're we're sort of easing back into into normal. I know uh, Governor Abbott just announced that breweries can reopen at at twenty five percent capacity. I mean, do you do you think that you will reopen your tap room and start getting some people through the door again? That's a big question um, that's on everyone's mind and we're all talking about it. We are, yes, we are looking seriously at, um, at the next step. And, um, you know, I think for us, it's a matter of when, of course, um, but we are, we, we brought back, um, Jorge is our hospitality director, our our one full-time employee that we had, and we we brought him back a couple of weeks ago to start back up the curbside operation that's been going for a week, and um, we've we've been having serious discussions about what it's going to look like when he open the tap room. And um, when I say tap room, it's probably going to be more like just patio. So you know, you come in, you could just sit up sit on the patio, and and we'll bring beer out to you. Um, or you can come in and, and order, um, it'll be plastic cups only, you know, a lot, lot of, a uh, lot of changes. Um, but yeah, we are looking at, at, uh, opening the patio for, uh, for customer use. We just got to figure out exactly when and, uh, and put the finishing touches on 
sanitizing protocols for customers and using the bathrooms and things like that. But yeah, I think we are, we want, we, we, we're eager, but we want to do it right. Right. I'm, I, there is that kind of balance between, you know, being excited to kind of do what you do, but also being conscious about, you know, we're still living with this disease and, and it's not, it's not necessarily clear, like, how fast it's spreading or, or who's at risk or, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, our understanding of what we're supposed to be doing has been changing ever since January. So. Oh yeah, man. It's been a wild, wild ride. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's so, it's just so crazy. And I think we, we all want, um, and there's, you know, we, we all want to have, we all want to eliminate the uncertainty, you know, have all the testing in place so that we know, who's got, you know, who's got it. And, but, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're in a position now where we've got to make a decision under uncertainty and that makes, that's what we've been, it's been pretty uncomfortable and scary at times. And, um, yeah, you don't want to, we, we would, um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing I would regret more than opening too soon, um, than, or recklessly and, um, you know, being responsible for, uh, for, for, for deaths. <laughs> so, right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. I, I cannot believe that we're, that we're making, that we're here making these decisions, but that's what we have to do. And I think, um, I'll put in a plug for local businesses. The beauty of these, of local businesses is that we are so accountable to our customers. Um, you know, business like ours, my customers, they know where I live. They know where I work. My, our name is on the building. So like, I don't need any governor or mayor or, or city official to scare me. I am plenty scared of, you know, I, I own, we own these consequences. So when we're going out there and if we make an announcement that we're going to be opening, you know, I know that customers are going to be reading that closely, that our fans are going to be reading that closely um, and considering are, are we doing the right thing? And I know we're going to we're going to hear about it. So um, and I think that's great. I think that's exactly how um, how the world should work. And that's what I think that's one one of the things that's so beautiful about owner operated local businesses. Yeah. And I've been kind of saying this for the last couple of weeks is I I really do think it is, you know, it without like very clear mandates from the government that I just don't think we're going to get, we really do have individual responsibilities to, to go to a business or not go to a business based on kind of how comfortable we feel. Like I'm, I'm still only eating on patios and I won't eat at a restaurant where the servers aren't wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And I recognize mm -hmm. there are, you know, plenty of people walking into, you know, steak 48 has been very public about, you know, we're not wearing masks. Well, that that's their decision as a business, right? They're in compliance with the law if they have enough social distancing and they're following capacity restrictions and all of that. But as a consumer, like I, I'm voting with my wallet, I'm not going to stake 48. And, and yeah. you know, based on some of the pictures I've seen on social media, there are, you know, a couple of hundred people a night that are making a different decision. But you know, I think, and I think kind of letting the market work and letting people make their own decisions is, is probably about the best we can hope for at this point. I'm with you. Yeah. 
So do you have kind of post uh, coronavirus plans? I mean, you you know, it's it's gotten real busy for breweries in, in your part of the world. You've had you've had platypus there for a while now, but then you've been kind of recently joined by Buffalo Bayou and now Urban South. I mean, do you kind of feel like the market is changing or, or do you feel kind of pretty confident about uh, the future of Holler Brewing? Oh, we, you know, I, two months ago I could have had a view, but now I, I don't, I just don't know that the, this coronavirus recovery, uh, the coronavirus and the recovery is such an X factor that uh, any, any predictions that I had about, you know, small market moves will be overwhelmed by, by how this will play out. But um, no, I think, I think we're still in a place. Actually, I think that if it's any indication, you know, we, we set up our, our deliveries and to-go sales pretty much overnight. And, um, and we didn't expect much support at all, but we've gotten a ton of support from the community. And I know that those other, that Platypus and, and Buff and Urban South have too. So, you know, I think the fact that people are willing to venture out and support these breweries, even though the product is more expensive than if you got it at a grocery store, they 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 are willing to pay that premium for that for that product and support these breweries. So I think, you know, if the demand is is as strong as it's been. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, our sales volume is well below what it normally is in our tap room, but it's stronger than I would have expected, which has been encouraging. So I would say that the, the market is, there is plenty of market to support more breweries in Houston. And, and, um, and actually before coronavirus, you know, when, when Buff Brew opened, we got, we, we had been seeing increased business from, you know, more people wanting to come to this area and try all the breweries. So I think there's, um, there's a net, especially when uh, when talking to folks uh, when talking to folks in the restaurant business, they hear of one brewery opening across from another, and that's like a, that's like a um, you know a sign of uh, you know that's a that's like a threat. threat. Yeah, but um, and if it was one fried chicken place opening across from another fried chicken place, yeah, it probably would be because you don't have people that are going. You don't have very many people who are going and eating. You know two fried chicken meals in one day, but in beer, it's like, uh, there's a network effect there where they say, Oh, actually that's the, that area has multiple breweries versus that other area that only has one brewery. Well, if I'm going to go out today, I'm going to go to the, I'm going to go Sawyer yard so that I can hit up all those breweries. And, um, that's, that's the effect that, um, we had heard that that effect exists. We have some friends that, that own breweries in Ballard in Seattle, which has like it's at one neighborhood with like 13 or 14 breweries within a couple of square miles. And they were all like, yeah, it's still, still going great. We don't know. We don't know when the, what the threshold is, but we can support 13 or some ridiculous number of breweries in this neighborhood. But yeah, we're seeing that same thing here that I think there's still, as long as this recovery um, happens, I think there still is a, um, a lot of support for, for going to, uh, local breweries and and we, we we can support these these four would be my guess all right and then I, I I meant to ask you this kind of in the background section but I'm I'm always uh, this is this is something I'm stealing from uh, Chris Wyatt a local beer enthusiast but uh, oh, what was your Twitter yeah shout out to beer beer underscore Chris on Twitter 
Um, what, about what was your gateway beer? Like, what was the first craft beer that made you kind of kick away from, you know, the national macro, whatever that you had been drinking before that? Uh, you know, I think it was, it would have been some Belgian beer, actually, because um, I was in college and uh, I was in a college town. And so all we had was like Natty, Natty Light and Bush Light and the sort. But there was one bar in that in Gainesville, Florida, that had um, at the time it was all these fancy import imported beers. And um, I just remember trying the I think it may have been Delirium Tremens. Um but I remember the Belgian beers just tasted like so, I mean, I couldn't believe they were beer. They're just so, such a, um, you know, they're still drinkable, but, uh, but such an aromatic experience. I, I remember the, you know, the trying the different Belgian triples and even the Belgian blondes, like a, even a, oh God, I hate to say this, even Stella at that time, I was like, <laughs> man, beer is just so much higher quality than anything I've had. And so, that opened my eyes to the idea that there's beer and then there's beer, you know. I don't know my first American craft beer, but, but yeah, I, I imagine it was, I imagine it was like a Sierra Nevada or um, at that time in that area, Sweetwater, like Sweetwater 420 was really big. And I drank a fair amount of that. Right. Like I, I went to college on the East Coast. So, you know, the summer I turned 21, I was living in Boston. So for me, it was uh, Sam Adams uh, yeah. Summer Ale. Yeah. And it was, cool. you know, citrus and a little bit spicy and refreshing and, and just totally different than anything I had ever had before. And that <laughs> the was the contrast. That's what opened the door. The, yeah. The contrast between any of those beers and and a Bud Light or a Natty Light is just so insane. I mean, it can be. Yeah, it's so different. Um, yeah. Boston beer. Sam Adams was like the was probably the first craft beer. It probably converted more people to craft beer than every other craft brewery combined. Absolutely. All right. Well, I, I don't know. I we're running a little long, so I, I had in my notes uh, three tier system. Do you do you want to do a two minute? Do you want to do a two minute rant about three tier system, or should I, or should I bring you back like uh, in six months to to dive into that? I'm hoping that you know the coronavirus kind of puts a uh, a wrench into the three tier system. You know, the coronavirus has shown us that uh, a lot of these silly laws um, are are really unnecessary. Like the, you know, for example, that um, I remember at the beginning they got rid of, or it was, I guess it was somehow illegal to do telemedicine or telemedicine was like really difficult. A lot of the providers wouldn't do it. And then the government just decided, oh, well, let's get rid of this, this law that prevents it. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, it's okay to do telemedicine now. Oh, well, that law was stupid to begin with. I think people really like this ability to buy bottles of wine or cocktail kits or or maybe if they tweak the laws a little bit pre-made cocktails from from bars and restaurants and i so yeah i, I kind of hope that we do we do take another another swing at this because i think that once you kind of give consumers these choices it's really hard to take them away yeah because then you have to because the whole the whole reason why all this is illegal is because it's a fear-mongering that well, if we made it legal, then the world would collapse. The world as we know it would collapse. And that argument has been taken away now because they made it legal and everyone's still fine. And now customers have gotten a taste of something that they like. Businesses have gotten a taste of something that they like. And now the government's on their back foot, you know, would have to explain why they're taking away some why they're taking away our 
our liberty. So, yeah, I hope it I hope it gets uh, chipped away at a little bit. All right. Well, we are we are running long, but I I can't wrap this up without uh, running you through the lightning round. Okay. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. John Holler, what is your favorite non-Holler beer? Oh, I would say St. Arnold's Summer Pills. What is the first band you saw in concert? Oh, man, I saw this. It was called Kiss Party 95 uh, for Kiss FM in Dallas, Texas. I was uh, <laughs> I was in third grade, and I went with my dad, and uh, the headliner was Duran Duran. Oh, that, that, that's a great answer. All right. Who is your... Uh, <laughs> What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Um, El Rey, uh, the one on Washington and Shepard. I get the uh, giant Cuban burrito. Yep. Uh, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, you know, uh, Dikembe Mutombo. With the finger wag, very solid. Yeah. yeah and then wag. finally, uh, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Anything, yeah. I mean, I go with something with something with red sauce, mozzarella cheese, and some kind of a pork product on top. So I don't start with anything fancy. Just pepperoni or sausage or um, prosciutto, something like that. Very good. All right, give us the uh, the website and the social media for Holler Brewing. Check us out. Um, Holler Beer is our all our our social media is H O L L E R B E R. So at Holler Beer for Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and then um, website is hollerbeer.com. John, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Eric. This was great. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.